One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This episode of Large Almond Latte is brought to you by Sunday Wine Co., the gift of beautiful boutique wines delivered anywhere in Australia. And welcome to another episode of Large Almond Latte, the ultimate in low involvement entertainment. Speaking of low involvement entertainment, this week, that's how I've been keeping it. I've been exercising from home like everyone else, which I've actually been really enjoying because I can do it in my pajamas and give up halfway, which I absolutely have been. I have also been watching this show, Summer House, which is basically Jersey Shore, but in the Hamptons. So think a bunch of hot New York entrepreneurs or people that work at BuzzFeed drinking rosé all day than having screaming matches at night. It is a real treat, I promise. You can watch the first two seasons on Nine Now and then the third and fourth on Foxtel. You will not regret it. Today on the podcast, I discuss some very essential life lessons that I, and I assume many of you, just missed the lesson on. Then I review the El Primo Cinderella, and also the one with the most beautiful cast, a Cinderella story. Then, of course, I will leave you with a life changer. It's no secret that there are so many things we learn at school that are a total waste, yet when we become adults, there are skills we actually need, but we have literally never heard of before. There are some really obvious ones, like I'm never going to use Pythagoras theorem, but knowing how to change a tire or do my taxes or negotiate buying a car would be super handy. But it's not hard to figure out that there's also places like RACV or H&R Block or your dad to help with those things. But I feel like these next lessons are ones that I just completely missed the boat on. And I could have really done with learning those lessons prior to, say, um, right now. The first one is cooking. And yes, I know this does get taught in school, but all I remember from home ec is whipping people with tea towels and maybe making a really bad pavlova. I also think that cooking is something that you learn from your family. And I hope this isn't controversial and I don't really know the best PC way to say it, but I think the lacking of cooking skills being taught through family is a pretty convict descendant white Australian problem. Like our culture comes, sorry, our culture, our food culture comes from stealing bread. And over 200 years, it really has only evolved to meat and tree veg. And of course, that's not to say all white people can't cook. Like I've seen MasterChef, I know they can, but honestly, how they learned to cook is a question that absolutely plagues me. Like as much as how could Dan have possibly been Gossip Girl? 
But for the rest of us basics, we can only work with what we've got. And we're learning from a culture of minimalist cooking. Minimal ingredients, flavor, technique, skill, and effort go into our foods. We're really not hard to impress. Like, you can cook onion and garlic in a fry pan and any white person would be like, ooh, that smells good. What are you cooking? I mean, like I said, we come from a culture of stealing bread, so it's totally not surprising at all that toppings on bread are our greatest accomplishment. Vegemite on toast, avocado on toast, cheese and sauce on breaded chicken. So this is why I think it's a basic white girl or boy problem. Like take spaghetti bolognese, for example. Obviously, it's an Italian dish, but tell me you didn't have it like once a week growing up. But here's the difference. Italians have a whole day with their families. They come together. They make sauce supply for like a year using their homegrown tomatoes. Then there's the beautiful ancient tradition of actually making the pasta. In Australia, your spag bowl is a pack of Barilla penne and a bottle of Dolmio you pick up from Coles on your way home. Like, see the difference? I'll, I'll keep going. Sandwiches. Greeks have gyros. Oh my God, I'm drooling thinking about it. Seasoned meat cooked on a rotisserie with tomato, onion, tzatziki. Our national sandwich is barbecue chicken and coleslaw in a bat roll. Or soups. Vietnamese have pho. We have continental cup of soup. Noodles. Thai have pad thai or pad cu. We have two-minute noodles. Get it? You get the picture? We're so basic. Like, no wonder we can't cook. I think you'll also find this is why Uber Eats is more successful in Melbourne than any other city per capita. True story. Look it up. So, I mean, I've definitely been trying to learn to cook. Like, I guess when you move out of home, you have to be able to at least boil water. But I'm never going to be at that stage where I can be a contestant on MKR, which is really disappointing because my life dream is to be on a reality show and cooking shows are just out of the question now. The next lesson is gardening. And bear with me because up until a few weeks ago, I would have never considered this an essential skill. But during this ISO season, I've been punishing myself by watching doomsday preppers. And I realized it would be a little bit beneficial to be slightly more self-sufficient. And, you know, my low maintenance indoor plants are not going to feed me. Side note, can we talk about doomsday preppers and how smug they would be right now, like just sitting in their little bunkers, eating their pickled foods in their camo, laughing at the rest of us. I mean, I'm still not inspired to go out and get a bunker. There's no way I can provide all of the necessities I need for doomsday, like chocolate and wine, but surely I could get a chicken and grow some vegetables, maybe? Surely. But I actually would not have a clue how. Like, which vegetables grow in which season? Do you need fertilizer for all vegetables? Isn't fertilizer just horse poo? Where do I get that from? How much space do they need to grow? And in what light? Like, is north sunlight the sun coming from the north or the plant faces the north? And when you're planting the seeds, how do you know which is going to be the front of the plant? And then what happens if you have a vertical garden? Like, how does it all work? I literally have zero idea. And I mean, I'm sure I learned in primary school school. But that was a really long time ago. I really needed those regular updates all throughout the high school and university years. And I mean, to be honest, gardening isn't a sexy activity for people that aren't 
boomers. Apparently for boomers, gardening is like sex, which is weird, but okay. But anyway, when I think of gardening, I think of my grandparents watching the gardening show at 5pm on a Friday on ABC. Like, not the fun ABC, like hard quiz ABC. Although gardening does seem really hard. So I've never been interested in it. So I feel like gardening would become interesting if maybe there were... I'll be blunt, hot, charismatic people doing YouTube tutorials on it. Like, imagine if they were like makeup tutorials and you just had Jeffree Star telling you how to grow a vegetable garden. There would be just lush balcony gardens all over the world. So if someone's looking to become an influencer, I think I've just found an opening in the market for you. I really think this could absolutely boom, especially in these ISO times. So get going and I'll take 10% of your profits. Okay, thanks. Next. This one I feel is the absolute most important lesson I've missed because as you'll find out, if I had learnt this lesson much, much younger, I feel like my life would be in a very different place right now. And that lesson is the lesson of financial management or personal financial management more specifically. I mean, honestly, I don't even know what to call it because I still haven't learnt it. But if I relied on my education I would be sitting here thinking my Dolomite account is all I need in life to manage money. But apparently, there is a lot more to financial management than splitting up your ING accounts into Splurge, Mojo, and Grow. Yeah, I've read The Barefoot Investor. The font is like size 16. Anyway, apparently, the stock market is quite a tidy little investment. Warren Buffett, who is like the god of the investment game, said that if he had invested $10,000 in an index fund in 1942, it would be worth $51 million today. That's including the 2009 recession, 9-11, Cuban Missile Crisis, and 14 presidents. I mean, obviously, that's a lot of money in 1942 when people were a little preoccupied with the war, but you get the picture. And now I do understand why old money keeps compounding and the rich just keep getting richer. But basically, he's like, he bought his first stock at 11 and he's like, buy early. Well, why am I only hearing about this now? When I was 11, I was spending my pocket money on a collection of lip smackers. I could be a millionaire. But apparently some millennials didn't miss the memo and do know how to manage their money because there is this specifically millennial financial movement out there that I have become obsessed with. And not so much because it's about money, but more so because it's a cult and who doesn't love a cult? So this guy, Mr. Money Mustache, started this movement called FIRE, which stands for Financially Independent Retire Early. Basically, you save 50 to 75% of your income so you can retire in your 30s or 40s. Kind of this anti-capitalist sustainable method of living with a side of absolute elite investment knowledge. So this is a quote from him, which is amazing. By focusing on happiness itself, you can lead a much better life than those who focus on convenience, luxury, and following the lead of the financially illiterate herd that is the TV ad absorbing middle class. Happiness comes from many sources, but none of these sources involve car or purse upgrades. Um, I feel personally attacked by that quote. Also, I beg to differ. I feel like a Chanel bag is not only a gratifying purchase, I assume, but it's also an investment. And to be honest, the frugal fire stories that I found literally sound like my idea of fresh hell. 
So the first guy is this 38-year-old from Denver who recently retired from his tech job. And oh yeah, the other part of the FIRE movement is that you basically need to be working in tech or finance to begin with and earning at least 100000 US dollars to be able to do this. Sorry, too bad if you're on minimum wage or have crushing debts. So him, his wife and two kids live on $40,000 a year. Like that is actually how much I spend on Uber Eats and coffee for a year. And you know what? I'm pretty full and happy about that. Or there's the 38-year-old lawyer who wants to retire by age 40 with $2 million in the bank and she is well on her way. And I can't like this bit makes me so sad. The way she does it is she, she buys brown bananas, walks to work, okay, good, and borrows Netflix passwords from her friends. She's also single with no children. And honestly, with that sort of mentality towards life, are we surprised? On the plus side, I feel like she would be a perfect candidate for an episode of Wife Swap if she was a wife, which she is not. But these are extreme examples or what's called frugal fireys. There's also this kind of middle ground, which is called fat fire. It's not quite as extreme. Like, I think you can buy fresh bananas and you live off a slightly higher income. But again, the catch is you're pretty solid with your investment knowledge. Hence, a lot of these people work in finance. This does sound more achievable, but... (laughs) Again, where was the lesson on this? Lucky now there are some really good podcasts which don't teach you about fire, just kind of teach you common sense investing and saving and spending. If like me, you have a giant pit in your stomach right now because you've realized you are way behind the eight ball with managing your money, check out She's on the Money or My Millennial Money podcast. They actually are millennials and speak your language. And like I said, it's really common sense. So what I have taken away from this little semi-lesson is that A, if my family would have invested in 1942, I would never have had to work a day in my life. So I'm pretty mad at them right now. And B, if I had learned about financial management when I was 11, instead of learning about Australian explorers and long division, I would be retired right now on a yacht watching Netflix on someone else's account. So all of these lessons, yeah, it's a bit of a what if, what if I had learnt this earlier? And I know it's a little bit depressing, but I mean, if we're 30, 25, 30, 35-ish now and we're going to live to 90, I guess there's no better time like the present to start, which is what I'm going to tell myself anyway, and I need to go and get a drink, stat. And thanks to Sunday Wine Co., this week's sponsor, I am fully stocked up on rosé and I didn't even have to leave the house to get it. Obviously, I also couldn't. If you've got friends or family who have a birthday this ISO season, Sunday Wine Co. has the perfect gift. It's run by two fellow wine enthusiasts from the Mornington Peninsula, so you know they've got refined palates. They curate drops from boutique Australian wineries, package them into gorgeous boxes and deliver them to your loved ones anywhere in Australia. Whether you're after pretty pinks, bold reds or popping the Prosecco is the mood, they've got a match for you. Starting at only $50, visit sundaywineco.com.au to order yours pronto. One for them, one for you, I say. Cinderella. I don't know what it is about this movie, but people love remaking it in a million different forms. This doesn't happen with any other Disney movie. Like, there aren't a million movies about Snow White. 
actually, wait, a white girl and seven dwarfs. Now that I think about it, there probably are. They're just really R-rated. But Cinderella, not only did it have that painful live-action Disney version with Rob Stark and Lily James, there's Cinderella with Brandy, the first Cinderella of colour ever after, the feminist retelling of Cinderella with Drew Barrymore, Cinderella 2, Cinderella 3, which, to be honest, how? The ending is pretty final. They live happily ever after. Duh. Then there's Ella Enchanted, Cinderella A Christmas Wish, another Cinderella story, If the Shoe Fits, Once Upon a Song. But there's only one OG Cinderella. And no, it's not the 1950 version. It's the 2004 masterpiece, A Cinderella Story. We open with my best friend, Hilary Duff, who stars as Sam, a young child hanging out with her best friend her dad. He owns a diner and they play baseball together. It's really cute and wholesome. But then he meets Fiona, aka the evil stepmom, aka Jennifer Coolidge, aka Stifler's mum. And they could not be more opposite. This is one thing I never understood about Cinderella. The dad seems like such a good guy. He's painted as this saint. And how does he fall for such a horrible lady? Well, my friends, I have worked it out. He is the ultimate boobs man. Well, at least in this version. I mean, have you seen Stifler's mum? She's a MILF. And she has gigantic cans. So anyway, then the dad dies, an idiot. He doesn't leave a will, so Stifler's mum gets everything. Fast forward to the present day, aka 2004, and Hilary Duff, or Sam, is now 15 or 16. And I feel like this opening scene serves to inform the audience of the child abuse red flags that are flying high absolutely everywhere. So Sam is serving Fiona food while the other two daughters, aka the evil stepsisters, have their synchronized swimming lesson. Then we get to see the diner. Fiona's given it a makeover and now the servers, which are still the same servers from like 10 years ago when the dad died, are all on roller skates, which feels very OH&S. Now we've established a bit of background. We're at school and... Holy Lizzie McGuire, I remember trying to copy the outfit that Sam is wearing in the first school scene. It's really tomboyish, and I guess now it would just make her androgynous, but she's wearing army pants that are riding so low, I'm sure they had to crop out her crotch whiskers in post, a baseball top, and an LA Dodgers hat. So then we meet the cool kids and the hottest couple at school, Austin and Shelby. Austin, as you probably know, is Chad Michael Murray, the ultimate early noughties dreamboat that married his One Tree Hill co-star Sophia Bush for a hot minute and then they got divorced and had to work together for another six years. Anyway, they do not like Sam. They keep calling her Diner Girl. They have no reason to be mean to her and honestly, I feel like if these kids were in any other school, they would actually be the losers. But I assume they're teasing her because it's Hilary Duff and she's actually so cool that they're intimidated. Sam is hanging out with her best friend Carter, who, side note, is the son from Cougar Town which, if you haven't watched, is a highly underrated show made by the guy that made Scrubs and Courtney Cox is the main character. You should definitely watch it. Anyway, so she's hanging out with Carter and her bedazzled flip phone starts beefing and she literally is like, bye, and she leaves Carter to go and hang out and text on her phone by herself. Like, what kind of friend is she? Anyway, turns out she's texting this guy she's never met before but is having an online relationship with. 
It smells like catfish to me. Lucky I've seen this movie before and I know that it's not. She met this guy in a Princeton chat room with the screen name Nomad and coincidentally, they just go to the same school. They spend the whole day at school texting, like not paying any attention in class and keep texting until 2am in the morning. Surely you are not getting into Princeton if you spend all day texting and not focusing on study. Oh, but wait. The faceless man she's texting is Austin, the most popular guy in school, who also has a girlfriend which nobody seems to be acknowledging. Wow. It turns out that Austin is just really misunderstood. He's not the cool jock everyone thinks he is. He's a poet and he really wants to go to Princeton, but Austin's dad is a real hard ass. He wants Austin to go to USC and play football. Then when he graduates, he can help run the car wash they own. Um, sorry. So, stop. Austin works at a car wash and his grand plan is to manage that car wash. Sam works at a successful diner. Why is she the only one getting bullied in this situation? No, no, sorry, my bad, because he's Chad Michael Murray. That's why. Never mind. So the next day is the day of the Halloween dance and Nomad and Princeton Girl discuss finally meeting each other that night. Sam asks Fiona if she can go to the dance because it's really important. And Fiona's like, no, you're working tonight. And I feel at this point, Fiona is getting a pretty bad rap. I really don't think she's an evil stepmom. I think she just knows the meaning of discipline and hard work. She owns a successful business. She's a philosopher and she is straight to the point. She's like to Sam, you know what? People work hard so they can go to college and get a job. You already have a job, so consider it a shortcut. I mean, she is not wrong. And she's working at a diner. That's basically like every other teenager's after-school job at McDonald's. For mine, Sam is a little bit ungrateful. So then Fiona pulls her down a peg with one of the best lines in the movie. Oh, Sam, you're not very pretty and you're not very bright classic. So then Sam goes to her room and she cries. That night, the cool kids are having a pre-dance meal at the diner. Like, they're always there. Booming business, Fiona. Well done. Anyway, Austin breaks up with Shelby because he thinks meeting Mystery Girl is a sure thing. Meanwhile, Carter, Sam's BFF, swoops in and he's like, Sam, we're going to the dance. So Sam's like, yeah, the diner's full, but you know what? I'll ditch my shift and leave them understaffed and on rollerblades. Just got to be back by midnight, of course, or it wouldn't be a Cinderella movie. This other lady, Rhonda, aka Regina King, is like, yeah, go. And then she's like, you know what? I'll come with you. We'll both leave. So now there'll be two staff down at peak hour. No wonder Fiona doesn't like these people, honestly. They get to the costume shop and the guy's about to close and Rhonda's like, I'll give you free breakfast for a week. Like, Rhonda, that's not your call to make. Is that going to come out of your paycheck? Are you even going to tell Fiona about that? This woman should not have a job. Anyway, they go in and cue montage of Sam trying on all these cute outfits. And even though there's some excellent options like Tin Man, she doesn't even pick one. How mad would you be if you owned the costume shop? They do pick out an eye mask and then they go back to Rhonda's house because she's like, I've got the perfect costume. I mean, you've just been in a costume shop. Maybe the perfect costume was there. You're in a bit of a rush. Rhonda gives Sam a wedding dress to wear. I'm sorry, what kind of person? pre-purchases a wedding dress despite not having a man. I imagine it's someone that is just completely obsessed with weddings and planning their own weddings. But no, she's bought this wedding dress and then she gives it to a 15-year-old girl to wear to a high school dance. I just think by this point, Rhonda must have really given up on life. 
I mean, she's in like her late 30s and she's been working at this diner on rollerblades that she absolutely hates for like 20 years. Honestly, the symbolism of this scene is quite sad when you think about it. Oh, it's even bringing a tear to my eye. No, it's not. Anyway, let's move on. So Sam makes this grand entrance to the dance and everybody turns and looks at her, but nobody recognizes her. This feels very Clark Kent Superman-ish. Wait, literally the only people that kind of recognize her are her stepsisters, who honestly should not even be attending this mainstream school. They are not Right. So Princeton girl meets Nomad and she's like, oh my God, you're Austin Ames. This cannot work. Do you know who I am? And he's like, nope. Like, really? Then she's like, what about your girlfriend? Oh, so cool. Sam has known all along that he had a girlfriend and was just a willing participant in this emotional affair. Cool. And he's like, we broke up, obviously, because he was meeting Princeton girl tonight. Then they play 20 questions to see if he can work out who she is. And spoiler alert, he does not. He just keeps banging on about how he would have remembered her if he'd met her before. Ugh, you are actually kidding me, Austin. He's about to pull back her mask when her flip phone alarm goes off. It's 11.45 and she has to be back at the diner by midnight. So she flees. She's gone before she hears the announcement that her and Austin, who of course is dressed as Prince Charming, have won homecoming king and queen. Even though she's clearly wearing a wedding dress, they don't call her bride. They call her Cinderella. She has no fairy godmother, no glass shoes, literally nothing about that outfit, says Cinderella. Anyway, she makes it home by midnight. Yay. The next day, Austin is full psycho. He is putting flyers up all over the school. Have you seen this girl? Looking everywhere for his Cinderella. And all these girls line up pretending that she was them, even though she clearly had blonde hair. These girls are such liars and Austin is not having a bar of it. He even goes to the diner after school and whinges to Sam about it and he still does not know it's her. I need a break from Austin and I need to talk about her best friend, Carter. So the night before, he was the one that drove her home in his dad's Mercedes and he hits a pole at the diner on the way home and then the pole, the sign comes down off it and nearly lands on his head. Like he is so close to death, but then it lands on the car. So the next day at school... He's been grounded. Like, were his parents not like, it's fine, thank God you're alive? No, all they cared about was the car. And then at the dance, he hooks up with Shelby because he's also in a mask, Zorro mask, and Shelby's nearly single on the rebound. And so he goes up to her the next day at school and he's like, yeah, we've got a thing. And she's like, ew, I don't think so. And then they all splash water on him. He is not having a good time and he's such a nice guy. I feel like Carter really is the tragic hero of this entire film. Okay, let's get back to the main plot and oh no. Sam has left her computer open and her evil stepsisters have read the messages between her and Nomad. Oh my God, they're about to reveal everything. So they run to Shelby because if you want to cause maximum destruction and embarrassment, you go to the cool mean girl who's just had her boyfriend stolen by said girl. And Shelby is pissed and wants to cause a scene. So after the pep rally, they arrange this little skit to reveal the whole story to the school. Honestly, drama club. At the pep rally, like I said, at any other school, these cool kids would be the losers. 
but oh my god, everyone thinks it's so funny. It's worse than sitcom canned laughter. But honestly, it's just super weird that people are so obsessed with Sam. Sam is clearly embarrassed by this and the teachers just sit there and do nothing. So Sam runs home crying. Once she gets home, her problems get even worse. Fiona brings her a letter from Princeton and she's been rejected. Devo! Fiona is so caring, so she reassures her that she'll always have a job at the diner. And she also knows in a time like this, you stress eat. So she leaves Sam a plate of cookies. What a doll. Then there's a montage of Sam moping around the school to a sad song. And then there's just this voiceover of Shelby saying, people like her don't belong in our world, Austin. What are you talking about, Shelby? Sam and Austin live in the same world. They go to the same school. They both want to go to Princeton and they're both offspring slash step offspring of successful business owners. At this point, you might be wondering, what's Austin been doing all this time? What did he do at the pep rally? Nothing. Absolutely nothing is the answer. He has not had a single line. He attempts to write to her as Nomad, but then he deletes it. So I really think his role at this point is just to look hot. So the audience is reminded that whatever pain Sam is going through, it's totally worth it. Then we see Sam at her job at the diner cleaning the floors when she snaps. Fiona asks her to clean the pool when she gets home and she's like, no. I quit, I quit your job, I quit your family, and I'm moving out. Now, in hindsight, now that I'm not watching this as a teenager, I can see that this response is classic teenager mood. You're asked to do one thing around the house, and it's a disaster, and you throw a tantrum. But Sam follows through. She quits. And then Rhonda quits, which after that free breakfast theft incident, she should probably be fired anyway, to be honest. Then the other waitresses quit. Then the chef quits. Then all the diners walk out without paying. But I'm sorry, if you could afford to quit, why were you all working in a job that you hated until this point? Sam has finally found her big girl pants and she is on a mission. So she goes to talk to Austin before the big game because we all know that he's not going to initiate any talking. She finds him in the locker room getting ready and in devastating news, he's wearing a top. She's like, I believe in myself, blah, blah, blah. Even though I have no family, no job, and no money for college, it's you I feel sorry for. Waiting for you is like waiting for rain in this drought. Useless and disappointing. Bang. Mic drop. Exit. Then, who is waiting to comfort her? Of course, it's her best friend, the unsung hero, Carter. He's like, what are you doing? And she's like, well, I don't have a job or family anymore, so, you know, not much. So they decide to go and watch the football game. So they're at the game, and it's like the last quarter, and there's this casual voiceover from the announcer, which honestly, I don't even think you would notice if you didn't have a keen ear or watch this movie 235 times like I have. But the scores are tied, and the winner of tonight's game goes through to the playoffs for the state championships. From watching a lot of Friday Night Lights, I feel like a lot of people's college acceptance is going to ride on the result of this game. Like, it's a big deal. So everybody starts chanting Austin's name because he's the quarterback, obviously. And Sam decides she cannot handle the sound of his voice and she starts to leave. And Austin catches her leaving, but he doesn't know what she's doing. She could just be going to get a pie and a Coke for all he knows, but he ditches the game and runs after her. If I 
I was his teammates, I would be pissed. But lucky there's a backup QB who scores a touchdown and they win, which makes me question if maybe that QB shouldn't have been getting some more game time to begin with. Austin stops Sam in the stands and he kisses her. Then it starts raining and the drought is broken. Mmm, love. Now that Sam has a man, the rest of her life just falls into place. Turns out Daddy did have a will and he left the diner, the house and all of his money to Sam. So Sam takes everything away from Fiona and her sisters, stepsisters. Despite the fact that Fiona basically raised her, which feels a bit rough just because she hid a will from her. Oh, and she also wrote a fake Princeton rejection letter so she'd stay at the diner. Obviously, Sam actually did get into Princeton, and somehow so did Austin. But you know what? Fiona, being the businesswoman that she is with strong work ethic, doesn't give up. She gets a job working at the diner, which is now restored to exactly the way it was during Daddy's time and is run by that thief, Rhonda. I mean, I wouldn't trust her, Sam, but okay. Sam and Austin go to Princeton together and drive off into the sunset and they live happily ever after with the banger anywhere but here playing over the top. Most importantly, Carter has a happy ending. He scores an acting gig in a commercial and becomes super popular and gets a girlfriend that's not Shelby, even though she's now super into him. The end. I give this treat a 9 out of 10. It's a classic for the ages. But there are only three Hilary Duff songs on the soundtrack. If all the songs on the soundtrack were Hilary Duff tunes, it would be a solid 10 out of 10. Okay, fans, buckle up. Now it is time for this week's life changer. And here it is. CC's stands for corn chips. Thanks for listening to Large Almond Latte. If you loved the podcast, you can subscribe on Apple and give us five stars if you're feeling super generous or follow us on Spotify. You can join the low involvement discussion by following us on Instagram at Large Almond Latte Podcast or join the Facebook group at Large Almond Latte Podcast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.